Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. I'm so happy and kind of sad at the same time that this is the last week that Sam and I will be reading to you from Killing Lions. If you just joined us here on the Ransomed Heart podcast, John Eldridge and my son, Sam Eldridge, we have written a book together that is, quite frankly, awesome. (laughs) If we do say so ourselves. Yes, if we do say so. Called Killing Lions, A Guide to the Trials that Young Men Face. But as we've been reading through the book, I think our listeners are saying, oh my, this is more than just for the young men in my life. This speaks to so many of the things we didn't get fathered in, so many of us growing up, like money and decision-making and dreams and hopes and how you balance that with career and how men and women relate to each other. So in some ways, it's kind of a chance to just get some fathering for your own heart. Anyway, happy and sad because this is our last week. Chapter 10 concludes the book. And what are we going to talk about this week? Yeah, well, this is all about the life going forward. And I'm leaving town and we've written this book together and it's a time to reflect on what's coming up next and what that means is pursuing God as a father and that all of these things, all of these tools that we've been diving into throughout the book, now using those and trying to walk with strength going into these years that they don't necessarily get easier just because I know how to make decisions. But now that I can know how to use that, I can walk with more strength, more purpose. Can you relate to that, listeners? It doesn't really get easier. (laughs) So the chapter title is Racing into the Unknown. Chapter 10, Racing Toward the Unknown. The true philosophy is concerned with the instant. Will a man take this road or that? That is the only thing to think about if you enjoy thinking. The eons are easy enough to think about. Anyone can think about them. The instant is really awful. And it is because our religion has intensely felt the instant that it has in literature dealt much with battle and in theology dealt much with hell. It is full of danger, like a boy's book. It is at an immortal crisis. G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy. The U-Haul is packed. We are heading east to Minnesota. Susie got accepted to that graduate program in nursing. I will be co-creating an online magazine for men called ansonsmagazine.com and looking for more lucrative work to support us. We will live in Minneapolis for three to five years, depending on which track Susie chooses to follow in her program. For Susie, this means going home, someplace she has not been for years. So it is not hard to guess where the spring in her step comes from. I have been packing our few possessions that, for the most part, were all gift-wrapped only a few months ago. We are going to the land of 10,000 lakes and helicopter-sized mosquitoes. Cheese. I have never seen people eat so much cheese, but then I guess I have never been to Wisconsin. Hot dishes. I have been told many times that calling it a casserole is just getting uppity. And the Vikings. A team that has never won a Super Bowl, but has some of the most dedicated fans. My wife still hasn't forgiven them for signing Brett Favre. It snows on average 49 inches per year in the Twin Cities. The high temp in January is 26 degrees, but nonetheless, people stand outside and catch up for hours at a time. 
all these months we've spent diving deeper into the spoken and unspoken challenges facing us young men, and really all men, feel a bit like suiting up. I have the image in my head of the Band of Brothers HBO series, specifically the image where the men are on the tarmac, strapping on ammunition, reviewing maps and objective orders, stripping and assembling their rifles, all waiting to board the C-47s that will drop them over Normandy. I wonder to myself as I sit on the curb, have I killed a lion? Right now, I feel an uneasiness creeping up and a voice inside that wonders if I would know a lion when I saw one. Maybe that's how this feels. It would sure seem a lot more obvious if I had a lion skin to don like Hercules. I'm sitting here on the concrete and the memories come trickling in. I was 13. The sun was just up above the Wyoming horizon, the crisp alpine air stinging my lungs, gloves three sizes too big blocking my adolescent fingers from grabbing the lip of an overhang on the Grand Teton. Below me is a 3,000-foot drop to a glacier that stubbornly clings to the rock in the July sun. You sat above me, on a shelf four feet wide, a rope wrapped around your waist that you reeled in as I climbed. Above us, another 2,000 feet of climbing before you reached the summit. We trained for that day, and it was an intentional act of initiation into young manhood, one that I remember well 12 years later. Summiting the Grand. Boy, was that a lion. Then they were stepping off into college, a few states away from my family and everyone I knew. Those years were a series of challenges, some inevitable, some chosen. None more impactful than stepping up to apply to be a resident assistant. I felt suited for the task, but knew that my reputation would probably inhibit my acceptance. Instead, I was welcomed and affirmed, many times as doubt crept back in, by John Young, who would act as a permission giver to me over the course of that year. The permission I needed was to be real, despite the voices telling me not to. Choosing to engage, or not engage, the young men of my section was a battle every day. Heck, sometimes just leaving my room was a challenge. I had to face isolation, self-deprecation, the role of a mentor, the role of psychiatrist, the role of judge, and every so often, the role of friend. The relationships that last, even now, are a testament to the many lions that were killed that year. I ran a half marathon. Me. Me who quit track after two years in high school, who needed to quit smoking to get past the three-mile mark, who had never run more than two miles at a time to begin with. At first it was brutal, and I begged for a smoke mid-run, but then something in me rose to the challenge. I started running five days a week, stopped smoking, mostly, cut down on some of the happy hours. Coincidentally, this was also the time Susie was entering my life. Now, the race wasn't pretty. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even a registered race, just a group of friends who mapped out a course for ourselves and ran one afternoon. But that didn't matter for my heart. What mattered was that I ran 13.1 miles one sunny day in March with a group of friends, after a couple of months of training, and I never would have guessed I could have. My junior year of high school, we built that Baja bug together. With the help of a sawzall and an air-cooled restoration mechanic, we transformed what had been an unobtrusive little 68 Beetle into a beauty that got more second looks than Sofia Vergara. That car was a lady killer. It was a joy to drive around town and probably took some years off my hearing. Like most custom cars, it also needed constant love and quality time, a toll that I quickly grew tired of paying. But because of the sentimental value of that car, I held on to it for about nine years. The lion came when I needed to sell it. I was getting married, and after the car had died on my fiancé a few times, leaving Susie stranded around town, I knew a more reliable means of transport was in order. 
So I sold it and bought something that should last me another decade without leaving my lady up a creek. It was hard to say goodbye. I mean, really. But it was a choice to leave some of my boyhood behind and make a responsible decision, which now gives me the peace of mind that I can do such a thing. Stepping up to Mary Susie and fighting for a wedding has to count. I felt as though the brief six months of engagement, well, at least now they feel brief, was a time to better myself before that day. It's funny, but somehow I felt as though it's easier for me to push myself when there is an end in sight. Running every day, working on being more gracious, praying more often, choosing to step up and play the man, they were all easier to do when I had an end date in mind. As though when I got married, I would either be so used to doing those things they would come naturally, or they wouldn't matter anymore and I could revert back to my old self-centered ways. Oh, how long must I look back on myself and shake my head. Still, as little as I knew, I was aware at least of what I was stepping into, and that I had much to learn, and that it would be tough, the hardest thing I might ever do, but also the most beautiful. That was a lion I knew was a lion. It didn't wait to show its true colors until after the fact. It was one of the few that charged straight in, and conquering it was making the choice to step up and play the man, even when there was no end date in sight. Writing this book has definitely been a lion. This has not been easy. Every day, fighting off feelings of inadequacy, discouragement, the feeling that I am a fake, pulling off a shtick, not putting anything new or helpful on paper. Choosing to fight what Stephen Pressfield calls resistance in his book, The War of Art, by sitting down and pushing through the lies in order to write. But two words have been taped to my computer as reminders. Poet, for the moments of inspiration, and warrior, for all the times without. There is nothing quite like putting yourself out there on the page, but this has been a lion I've been excited to tackle. And tackle it you have. Those are all legitimate lions, every one. You have a right to feel strong. The development of soul strength takes place subtly over time, just like physical strength and endurance. Each of those challenges you rose to was more than an event, a moment of victory, a genuine courage and true masculine strength were being formed in you, growing in you each time. More has happened within you than you probably feel, Sam. Remember your bachelor party? That night on the beach, tucked under the cliff around a campfire with your brothers and friends gathered round? Remember the amazing words spoken to you? That was a powerful night, one of the best of my life. I remember sitting around the fire as the guys took turns sharing memories and validating me. Some said they believed in me, valued me deeply as a friend, and one even said he would follow me. I couldn't have asked for more. As men, we always wonder if we are up for the next challenge, the next phase of our life. But can I handle this? Seems like the haunting question of masculinity, always staring us down. It's not the lions we've killed that capture our attention. It's the ones we know are waiting out there for us in the tall grass. So let me ask, right now, in this moment, at this juncture, where do you feel least sure about yourself? I wish this wasn't the case, but I feel least sure in my ability to create a world for myself. What I mean is actually finding a solid group of guys to walk life with, not just correspond with every so often, and actually finding or creating meaningful work, and actively creating a home and world with Susie. Part of the doubt comes from the past couple of years where work was really hard to find in general, let alone something I found to have meaning, and keeping or finding great guys was even more difficult. I know it is unfair to Susie, but I'm afraid that in lieu of creating a world for myself, 
I will eventually just hitch my wagon to her and let the world she creates suffice for the one I wasn't able to. Then this is the next step you must take. This is the lion you must now slay. I confess I hate this about the masculine journey, but it's true. Just when you think you've arrived, you are called up again. As soon as we've begun to get a feel for the stage we are at, the next one comes knocking at the door. And though one stage really does prepare us for another, they're never quite the same, and so once again we wonder if we have what it takes. It helps to repeat to yourself, this isn't just me. This is the nature of the quest. But here's the thing. In some areas, I still feel young. I mean, I'm 25 years old, engaging in many areas that are for men. But sometimes I still hear the voice of the boy in me. Yes, I'm surprised how much I still do myself. It's embarrassing how often it happens, really. There was once a wholeheartedness that was ours, back in our original life in Eden, which our soul somehow remembers. But because of the war, because of a thousand different moments of disappointment, shame, or heartbreak, we are not wholehearted. There are young places within us still. There is a boy within. And it is the boy who often feels overwhelmed by the new mountain in front of us. I still remember how I felt on my wedding day. I was 23, just like you. There I was, a boy in a tuxedo, sitting in the pastor's office before the ceremony, just waiting. Through the door, I heard the piano begin to play, and I knew I was about to burn my ships like Cortez, except they felt like toy boats, and man, did I feel young, way too young to be getting married. Was I making a colossal mistake? I felt something from the same region of my chest going in for my first real job interview, and though I put on a tie and borrowed a pair of dress shoes, I felt like they'd know immediately that I was faking it, pretending to be a man. It happened with promotions, too. Could I handle this? And then there was the day we said goodbye to family and boarded a plane for Washington, D.C. You were three months old and we might just as well have been headed off across the prairie in a covered wagon, never to see home or kin again. At least, that's how I felt. Those feelings can be really confusing. They make us doubt our decisions, feel like we are in way over our heads, when in fact, it is simply the boy inside freaking out because he feels that he has to handle our life for us. Listen carefully. He does not. Every man is part boy and part man. God requires the man to step up and play the man. But to the boy, he offers comfort and healing. Be kind to the boy inside. It is the man God is calling to face down the next lion, but the boy he treats with genuine kindness. Do the same. Be kind to yourself, your fears, your feelings of inadequacy. Don't despise the fact that places in you still feel young. Shame never heals, never encourages, never makes whole. Give grace to those places that feel 6 or 10 or even 13. That sounds really encouraging. So if it is the man in me, and not the little boy, that must face the coming lions, I think he is already cluing in on what's on the horizon. As I look forward to this next season, I am very aware that I have some weighty choices to make. For starters, will I isolate? The cliche, no man is an island, jumps into my head and I want to gag. Instead, I know I have already felt the pull to become more removed over the course of this decade and the next. Work begins to demand our time, and afterward I'm usually exhausted. Throw in Susie, 
and I am tempted to let her be all the relational connection I need. Connecting with guys feels really hard in the age of mass communication and social media. I still don't do very well on the phone. It's too abstract. When I lived in California, hanging out with guys meant drinking together, almost exclusively. It was fun, and it has its place, but if that is all there is to it, it doesn't feel very substantial. Now, when I did something with friends, whether it was running or sailing or working on the ranch or riding together, the connection felt much stronger. A few of my friends still on the West Coast will garden together, and I've been rock climbing with friends during these few months in Colorado. What I have learned is that we need to be doing something. Collecting empty bottles doesn't count. It is really hard to cultivate this, and I can already feel the pull not to waste my time trying to make it happen. But I know that when I don't have good guys in my life, I don't do well. I know I'm not unique in my desire for close male friends, but it is first a choice to acknowledge it, and then a challenge to seek it out. I read that book you talked about, Shop Class as Soulcraft, and at one point Crawford challenged the man who tries to be alone this way. The idea of autonomy denies that we are born into a world that existed prior to us. It posits an essential aloneness. An autonomous being is free in the sense that a being severed from all other beings is free. To regard oneself this way is to betray the natural debts we owe to the world and commit the moral error of ingratitude. For in fact, we are basically dependent beings, one upon another, and each on a world that is not of our making. After you brought this up the other day, I was thinking back on the guys who were my friends during my 20s, sifting through the memories to see if there was anything helpful that stands out. Glenn was a landscaping guy who was a few years older than me. We shared a love of rock climbing and British pubs. Brian befriended me when I first arrived at church, and even though he had a career in sales and I was just finishing college, we made a point of going out for Mexican food once a week. As I moved into the corporate world, Jason became a close friend. We travel a lot on the job, and there's nothing like a buddy you can gripe about work with at the end of the day. Frank and John were maybe my closest friends. We met in the theater company, and having that shared mission gave us a context for the camaraderie that grew between us. None of them looked like the perfect fit. We were different ages. We came from different backgrounds. We were all really different personalities. Friends are like used cars, really. A little funky, not what you would have planned on, but you grow to love them. Be open to who God brings along. Don't look too close at the upholstery. I also noticed that all my friendships shared some sort of context or mission. Climbing, work, the theater. You're so right about this. It's really huge for guys. You've got to have something to do bigger than just drinking. It's in the context of doing stuff that the friendship solidifies. I also realized with a bit of sadness that none of those guys stayed in my life past my 20s. I guess that's just how it goes. Friendships have a season. I moved to D.C. Things changed, and that's okay. I only had one friend from high school that carried on into my 20s, Kyle, but he was more of an act of kindness than a peer, a guy I had a heart for and sort of threw a line to. It'll be important that you distinguish the two. God may call you to love and pour into some lost soul, but guys who drain you are not the same as good friends. Oh, and by the way, the boyfriends or husbands of Susie's friends probably aren't going to be the guys you want to hang out with one-on-one. -on -one. Every wife wants it to work out that way, but it rarely does. It's going to take some intentionality making friends in Minneapolis. 
especially since you have in the back of your mind that you guys probably won't stay beyond Susie's grad school. Volunteer with Habitat for Humanity. Join the local running club. Build trails with REI. Join a small group at church. Good guys are out there, but you'll have to make that choice to find them. The culture of young men feels like Peter Pan's Neverland. Every choice to step up and play the man is opposed by the pull to take the path of least resistance, to not grow up. The boy in me wants to coast, to take the easier road, to play all the time. Deeper still, the boy in me is really good at thinking about myself. And for him, fear is the great wolf, stopping any action that might be difficult. All play and no work makes Jack seriously undeveloped and useless. The boy suffers action while the man takes action. When I sold my VW, I needed a bit more money to buy a nicer car, so I sold my motorcycle as well. I knew there wasn't much use for it in Minnesota, but more than that, I knew it was a sacrifice that needed making in order to secure a better vehicle for the time being. I did not, however, sell my helmet. I know that motorcycles are in my future. I was not giving up on wildness. I was choosing to play the man and take action. Toward the end of The Alchemist, Santiago is robbed again and beaten while digging for his treasure. Despite all that he has been through, he despairs at first. What are you doing here? One of the figures demanded. Because he was terrified, the boy didn't answer. He had found where his treasure was and was frightened at what might happen. The boy in him pouts and wallows in his predicament until the man in him steps up to interpret the situation. The man in Santiago sees hardship as part of his journey, and by putting it in a context, he is not broken by it, but sees the guiding role even his antagonist can take. And then they disappeared. The boy stood up shakily and looked once more at the pyramids. They seemed to laugh at him, and he laughed back, his heart bursting with joy. It feels like so much depends on how we interpret things, especially hardship. Every great story and strong hero that I admire is fraught with difficulty and setback, but they see it as training and opportunities to go stronger. When hard times or difficult situations come, I, like Santiago, initially react as the boy, getting irritated and despairing at my poor situation. It is a choice to interpret as a man, seeing the context in my own story and choosing to take action rather than suffer it. I want a sense of mastery. In reading shop class, I have been struck over and over at the need to feel competent in our world, to be the master of our own things, as Crawford calls it. Again, the boy gets in here and fakes competency. A friend of mine, who will remain unnamed, worked for an online certification course company, which will also remain unnamed. This company offered courses in a variety of things, from installing drywall to handling black mold to basic electrician certification. My friend was a writer for these courses, and as such became an expert by researching the subject online for about 10 to 30 minutes, and would then write the course for real. This is a fantastic example of faking competency. Someone who never touched a conduit or carried drywall could bestow certification on someone else for the right price. Being willing to seek mastery of something, putting in the hours of work dealing with setbacks and the slow learning process is extremely humbling and empowering. To hold true mastery over anything, be it sailing or building model ships or carpentry or bow hunting or Japanese, it instills the kind of general attitude or competency that sets apart the boy and the man. I can't help but wonder, will I submit to the process? Will I hang in there? Crawford has a series of mentors in his journey of motorcycle mechanics, one he calls Fred. 
Fred is a true master of old bikes, and Crawford takes time to be an apprentice in Fred's shop, learning things that can only be passed down through hands-on training. We all want that in some capacity, I think. Having a guru or father we can learn from to guide us down the path of mastery may be the only way to really know we are heading in the right direction. Now you are naming a truly deep longing in men. Blaine just commented to me the other day that every young guy he knows wishes that some older man would come along and say, I've got a revolution. We need you. Follow me. So I'd like to suggest that the single most important decision you will make in the coming years, the one that will have by far the biggest long-term impact, is this one. Will I remain open to fathering? I don't mean from me, though I will always be here for you. I mean from your truest father, your God. Ethan is a young man in our community who I've been trying to help over the past couple of years. He doesn't have a father he can talk to like you and I have been doing. Well, actually, he's had three dads, but none of them offers him anything. He's learned to just go at life himself, and he's made a lot of painfully bad decisions. But he won't ask for help. He'll accept it, kind of, if I step in. But otherwise, he just sort of throws himself at life like those carnival bumper cars, careening around, bouncing off stuff, but without the bumpers and with a lot more consequence. There's an independent spirit that comes with the 20s, and in many ways, it is right on time. You need to head off into your own life, make your own decisions, and assert your own mastery over your world. But thanks to the divorce generation and the adolescent culture, most young men seize that independent spirit like a banner and never look for any form of fathering, a host of Peter Pans. But as you've discovered, the thrill of self-determination soon gives way to loneliness and disorientation. We were never made to do life without a father. Fatherhood is literally at the center of our universe. I know isolation has become our normal and it feels like freedom, but the trade-off just isn't worth it. Whatever else we've tried to offer in the pages of this book, the backdrop of it all is what it might look like to receive fathering. This is the ache of every man's heart, whether he's conscious of it or not. Thomas Wolfe said, The deepest search in life, it seemed to me, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living was man's search to find a father, not merely the lost father of his youth, but the image of a strength, and wisdom, external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. Above and beyond a woman, a job, even our dreams, this is what we need, all of us. That's not what it feels like at first. What we want right off the bat is a map of some kind, a plan, a clear path to begin walking down, something that makes it clear what is important for us to do and how to start doing it right now. Right, and God doesn't give one. Nobody gets the master plan, not even a five-year overview. Have you ever wondered why? The reason is simple and massively disruptive. God wants us to seek Him, draw near to Him, learn to walk with Him, and frankly, we won't do it if we have a plan to follow instead. I said in chapter 2 that man has an allergy to seeking God. It's sad, but profoundly true. God laments in Jeremiah, I thought you would call me father, but they wouldn't. You have a friend who is trying to figure out if and where to pursue a PhD, a friend who is trying to start a music career, 
another starting his own business, and a fourth who has gotten married but doesn't know what to do next. Are any of them asking God to father them? Are they seeking out the counsel of older men? You begin to see what I mean. I love the go-for-it zeal of young manhood, but too often it comes with a generous dose of, I don't need help with this, and no fathering ever takes place. Not until they are 38 or 55 and find themselves in a counselor's office with a collapsing marriage, runaway daughter, depression, anxiety, or a gambling addiction. Our allergy to God is never more obvious than when we look at how few men seek him out as father. I became a follower of Jesus at 19 and knew God was our father, but I lament that I have only sought his fathering in the past several years. What is it with men? Must we be so stubborn? As George MacDonald said, the hardest, gladdest thing in the world is to cry, Father, from a full heart. This from a man who had a really remarkable dad. Yes, it is awkward and unfamiliar territory for most of us, but the rewards of being fathered have no equal on earth. Look at it this way. We need guidance. Is it time to buy or keep paying rent? Is the mechanic screwing me or should I pay $950 to replace a CV joint? How long does grief last? How do I help my child with night fears? We need interpretation. Is this merely a soul-killing job or is it my current lion? My girl is crying a lot. Is this just a phase or something serious? Is my ache for a motorcycle on the open road the cry for a new life or do I just need a vacation? We need encouragement and validation. You're doing great. This is right where you need to be. You can handle this next move. I know you can. I'm very proud of you. In other words, we need fathering. It is the deepest, most desperate need of our existence. Without it, all you have left are your hunches and the sibling society and the Internet. Adolescent boys cannot father adolescent boys. Think Lord of the Flies. It begins with a posture. I need a father. I have a father. I am going to seek my father. Isn't that the turning point in the story of the prodigal son? He shook off his independence and took on a new posture, a willingness to turn fatherward, and it saved him. This was the turning point in Santiago's story. Come to think of it, this was core to every turning point in his story. First, he has the encounter with Melchizedek, who sets him on his adventure. But in typical 20-something arrogance, Santiago was irritated by the appearance of the old man on the bench next to him and simply wanted him to go away. Had he shooed the intruder off, he never would have gotten started. Once in Tangier, he gets himself into trouble when he follows the young thief, the adolescent culture, but he's rescued when he turns to the old shopkeeper for help. Sometime later, Santiago thinks he has found his life's meaning when he meets the beautiful young girl at the oasis. But it is the old alchemist himself who befriends him and sets him back on his quest. Maybe the reason we love the story is because it reverberates with Father. Ask God to father you every day. I'm serious. As you wake in the morning, as you drive to work, as you face new things, say, Father, I need your help today. I ask you to father me. Begin a practice of asking for it, and then remember to ask for it when you realize you haven't asked for it in some time. 
Next, keep an eye out for the many different ways it will come. God might bring a friend along, a mentor, for a particular need. The first year of our marriage, we got into a nasty conflict with our landlords. I didn't know what to do. God provided an attorney from our church to coach me through it. It took initiative on my part to seek him out, but he was wise and kind, and he saved me a lot of money and grief. Once the need was gone, he disappeared, like Melchizedek. For years, Mom and I both drove old Volkswagens. God provided Tim, a master mechanic who loved talk radio, and I got hours under the hood with my own Fred. Our first pastor coached me through a terrible crisis of faith. The associate pastor taught me how to study the Bible. Just like there are friends for a season, God will provide a father for a season. And oh, how we need them. My father died two years ago on Father's Day weekend. It felt like an in-your-face ironic dig. But he died in his heart many years before that. I'm 53, and I still have so many questions. Life keeps changing on me, too, asking more and more of me. I still need a father. And the day will come, Sam, when you'll be in the same position. What then? The grand design from before the world began was for every man to have a father all the days of his life. This is available. As I have learned to walk with God and recognize His voice, He has rescued me over and over with His love, His counsel, and His playful encouragement. This is something to be practiced, just like you learn to ride a motorcycle or lead a 510. I believe you young men are the warrior generation this world needs. I believe you will see very trying times, perhaps even the end of the age. The timing of Halo, the film adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, the resurgence of superheroes in film, and all the games and movies like these is curious indeed. Their epic, urgent, heroic battle cry was spoken at this moment in history, your moment. Perhaps it was orchestrated by an unseen hand. You have the strength and the courage to handle what is before you. You do. But you must not try to play Switzerland in this savage war. There is no neutral ground. The only safe move is to boldly take sides with the kingdom of God. Take your position in the line. Make the decision to be fully in, to become the warrior, live in the larger story, and everything else will fall into place. All things shall be added unto you. Really? As I think back on my years as a young man, the words I long to hear were the very words I still eagerly listen for today. You're going to be okay. You're going to find your way. You are not alone. That's really, really good. That's exactly what I need to hear. Maybe I'll take those words to my bathroom mirror because they are true. They are our birthright as sons of the living one. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to find my way. I am not alone. That concludes our book club here that we've been sharing the last several podcasts with you here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast as my son Sam and I have been reading to you from Killing Lions, the book that we've just released. Hope you've been enjoying this. Hope it's spoken to your heart. Hope you're also thinking of the five or six young men in your world that you want to get this for 
and go after their hearts and go after their identity and draw them into something real with God. Sam, as you think about kind of sending this out into the world now, what are you feeling? Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be sending it out. And partly because there's more, that the world doesn't end here, that there is the book, that there are the videos online at killinglions.com, that there's the journal that goes with this, that there's the world of Anne Sons magazine, that this is this is a larger picture and a larger world we want to be stepping into. Right. That's so good. It's an invitation into a world. Films that we have, we'll probably be doing some live events and also the rich, rich, ongoing monthly experience of Ann Sons Magazine. So there it is, friends. Thanks for listening in with us, Sam and John Eldridge, talking about and reading from our new book, Killing Lions. 